Well, welcome everybody, and thank you for joining our webcast today. As you know, the Association of Value-Based Cancer Care is responsible for information and dialogue in our ecosystem across all stakeholder groups. This ensures that patients will win on access and quality. We need to constantly improve and change our tactics and our deliverables in cancer care. This is why we hold these webcasts. This is why you're dialing in. We have key opinion leaders, the influencers, the important decision makers who are driving change in our ecosystem. Please join us, participate, ask questions, and offer your voice too. It's hugely important. So thank you for joining. We look forward to participating with you more. Stay safe. Thank you. As a follow-up to our conference this morning, a web chat, I have Art Taft, who's the uh, principal at MedWorks, who was our moderator. I just want to thank you on behalf of the Association of Value-Based Cancer Care for doing a phenomenal job this morning of calling out the issues specific to cancer care with employers that are purchasing these benefits for their employees. I thought it was very insightful. We had two great speakers with you. So maybe why don't you just give me a for a second here, what was kind of your thoughts post this web chat that we had this morning with employers on cancer care? Bert, thank you for the kind words. I think my thought coming out of it was that there is an opportunity for employers to work more closely with providers and with the pharmaceutical manufacturers themselves. Both parties have similar concerns and the employers to a large extent are looking for help from the provider community in terms of how to improve the current system, which I think can easily be enhanced today. Yeah, so one of the things that struck me, and James from Aramac, what I thought I heard him say is, you know, the purchaser, the buyer, is mm-hmm. not the purchaser, that these intermediaries. And, you know, one of the things that really irks me and I, look, I'm not standing up for the pharmaceutical industry. I'm not standing up for the PBMs. I mean, I'm just going to state a fact. Mm-hmm. We have a $470 billion drug spend in this country. And about 35% of that, that top-line spend, where the checks are written, people buy their drugs, employers pay for them, is what do we call access fees industry calls them rebates and other discounts. But any manufacturer that goes to market today, knowing that there's this type of cost inflation or price inflation that they're gonna get, have to be held accountable to because the PBMs and the health plans and the employers count on this money back because it's part of the financial transaction. And the more money back, I think we heard, the better that transaction looks. We heard employers say they're desperate for savings. So any manufacturer goes to the market has to distort their price because the market demands this money, let's just call it under the table money, because you and I don't see it at the pump. And, and, you know, that, so, you know, with co-pays and deductibles increasing art, and the fact that it's not a, you know, if you're a cancer patient, just because you have the bad gene or deadly disease, and these are expensive drugs, you, you pay a disordinate amount for that copay compared to other diseases that might even be self-inflicted. 
lifestyle diseases. But I'm concerned about the system and the perverse incentives. And if employers really understood the perverse economics going on here, would they step up and demand reform? The answer is they are extremely concerned about transparency is the terminology I think they would use. They know that the market is, I'll say, heavily modified by the intermediaries and the access pricing that you referred to. Their goal is to get the lowest cost for the right treatment. And this does not contribute to their ability to achieve that. They are dependent on the intermediaries that are negotiating for them because they have difficulty reaching out across the country. And I would argue that the access pricing is a legacy of the manufacturers when they were less involved in the specialty meds and more in the high volume brands, you know, the blockbuster brands of those types, because they were concerned with multiple competitors in the market that they needed to ensure that the channel was incented to support their product and move it. In this environment, what's happened is it's been distorted in part because the PBMs are largely the specially med distributors. Mm -hmm. And the specially med distributors are making money on both transactions. They're getting the rebates from the manufacturers in multiple ways, both as a distributor and as the administrator of the plan. And that environment wasn't where pharma started to use access fees in the late 90s. It is hurting the pharma manufacturers because no one blames the PBM or the distribution channel members that are owned by the PBMs for the price. It all is looked at as the pharmaceutical manufacturer's issue. I think there is a need to get this resolved. I think there are employers emerging that would like to explore that and find ways to work. If you think about these products, most of them are shipped in anyway from some centralized point because they need special handling and they're stored in limited numbers of locations. So there is a real opportunity. It, it is a real distortion as you're mentioning, Bert. And there's a real opportunity, I think, for the employers to find a solution that could work for them, that would also work for the well, manufacturers. Well, any market, any market which has a false bottom, and you could think of, you know, another example might be that manufacturers, some of them, as the dollar they bill might only collect 25 to 35 cents of that dollar because mm -hmm. of the patient assistance programs, copay support, free merchandise, rebates, discounts, other fees that the market demands from them. So, you know, it's, it's a problem. I don't think we have the right discussions going on. I, I think the forums like today, where you brought some of this stuff out, it was really interesting for St. Aramak to talk about they understand that they're the buyer, but they're not the purchaser. Mm -hmm. And we have to get closer, the buyers have to get closer to that conversation. So I thought it was enlightening, hopeful, silver lining of what you know, COVID is. So let's go to just COVID for a second. Every one of these manufacturers is furloughed employees, we know that benefits could be running out. The economy's not going to come back the way it was for a lot of these employers. I mean, I have a daughter who works at Ralph Lauren. Obviously, the clothing industry is obsolete until maybe late this year. 
if it does come back. Who knows what it comes back at? So more and more, these employers are going to have more stress. Did you get a sense that these employers today are even going to push harder for more discounts, more rebates, you know, more savings because they're under stress? And, yeah. you know, who pays for that? Will it be the employee having to pay a bigger share that helps deflect the pressure in the system? Employers have always cost shifted to meet their budgets. The process that they go through is they know how much they spent in the current year and they look at what their future looks like in the following year and they estimate how much they're willing to spend on benefits. And that budget, in a sense, is given to the HR benefit people to work through how to achieve that budget. And as you know, over decades, the employee has been picking up a larger and larger share of the total cost. It falls into two categories. It's the amount the employee contributes every month to insurance through payroll deduction. And then it's also showing up on the deductible and the copay process based on use. There is going to be a large amount of pressure, to your point, on employer budgets this year. Aramark was unusual only because they are sticking to their trend. Many of the other employers that I'm talking with have already started to worry about even 2020 budget. Because of COVID, overall spending is lower than expected. And there are a lot of CFOs that are trying right now to reallocate money from benefits to reflect what hasn't been spent. And many of the benefit managers right now for 2020 are arguing to keep the money because they don't know if there'll be a rush in spending at the end of the year. Right. That discussion will obviously be impacting 2021 and beyond. So let's move over to a, another issue is, you know, the election coming up. You know, it could be some, whether Trump administration stays or, you know, the Biden is successful comes into the White House. Both of them have completely different views of health care. I mean, Biden's group might feel Medicare for all. You know, he has a, a lot of progressives that he needs to satisfy and as part of his constituency versus Trump, that uh, administration is looking for more of a market-driven solution, IPI, other things, you know, transparency, and you're know, looking for the industry to work with government to solve the problems versus the government creating a universal program. Yeah. So how do employers, you know, are they concerned with this obviously disruptive change again? Because no matter if Trump stays or Biden comes in, we know change is on the horizon. Yeah. I'm going to say, and, and not try to be political, I actually think both parties understand the cost of care has to go down. The Medicare for all argument is based on the idea that commercial buyers right now are paying 273% of what Medicare pays for the same treatment. So in a sense, I'm going to say three times, it's a little bit of an exaggeration. The employers are very aware of that. There's been multiple studies that are publishing how much of a premium. So a Medicare for all argument would be that all of a sudden you're going to cut 52% of total spending to a third of what it's been. Practically, I don't see that happening because what would the disruption in the healthcare delivery system, what disruption would happen in the healthcare delivery system if all of a sudden 
two thirds, a half, it really comes out to about a half of what they're currently getting in income were to suddenly disappear. On top of all the financial disruption that was going on with COVID-19 and the losses that many of them have been taking as a result. I think both political parties, regardless of the outcome, are gonna look at things like index pricing. Mm -hmm. um, it's an intermediate way, it's not as catastrophic. You know, politicians above all try to balance both sides of an argument and no one wants to disrupt the health delivery system in a catastrophic way once they understand it. Mm -hmm. That's my speculation. Okay. Yeah, and, and we won't know we're something under 90 days out. Yep. We still won't know until sometime late first quarter, depending on what the programs presented will be. So a lot of coalitions and others have gotten together. You know, it's Aramac, who we heard from James today, 150, 180,000 employees in the U.S. I mean, he's got a big pen. You know, he's got some leverage. But still the greater part of the business community doesn't have the big hammer. And so they co-op themselves into coalitions and others to help succeed. What's the future of that? Is that system working or... Is the small employers being represented well enough? Do they have leverage when they come together? What's your thoughts on this? You're asking a couple different questions. There are obviously, you know, 60 or more business coalitions on health around the country. Most of them are actually set up as educational institutions, although many of them function as buying groups as well. They're not into the kind of detail that would be oncology specific. Mm -hmm. although they share and are promoting a lot of information on oncology care. You know, Mike Thompson, who runs the National, had a whole report done on what is appropriate cancer care that was distributed across all 60 of his coalition members. On the small side, they're in a different category, and I think you're familiar with the term captives. If I went back, I don't know, a decade, I think you would find that self-insurance started with an employer that had about 300 lives. Today, there are people with 50 lives that are going to self-insurance because they're joining captives. And a lot of times these captives, there's one here in North Carolina I'm familiar with that has 1,400 members and they have about 30,000 lives and they act in that way. Now, those are really very specialized health plans Mm -hmm. for the members, and they do make shared decisions. So I think on the small side, you're going to see the growth of captives on the very small side. On the very large size, you'll see a lot of uh, continued information exchange. There are others that are looking at different buying groups. Part of the issue about trying to resolve it is geography. If you think about a very large employer like Aramark, they're global. They have people all across the U.S. specifically, Right. And when they try to figure out how to provide care, in their case, they have multiple health plan relationships and they have geography where they're dealing with all sorts of providers throughout the whole system. And it's very hard for them to sit down with a provider group and negotiate. CBS, you know, Michelle Martin is more concentrated because CBS she has the news company. Is the news company. Yeah, they have roughly 35 locations across the country that are all big locations or bigger locations. Mm -hmm. So there are companies like that that has the ability, and I think you may remember from Michelle, she likes to contract 
where she can directly with providers. So specifically, you're talking about carving out cancer to a center of excellence, and maybe not just cancer, but they might be looking at other high-cost, complex disease. Yeah, my, my understanding of what the city of New York is doing is they do have a contract with Memorial Sloan Kettering, and that's a good example of a concentrated population. Now, effectively, the major thing that Memorial Sloan Kettering is is a second opinion and helping the patients understand their illness from outside of their specific providers. But I think there's also some level of pricing discussion that's coming in some of these deals where if more volume goes to those institutions. So I personally speculate the lead for evolutionary change here is mm -hmm. gonna be the concentrated buyer, not necessarily a very large company, but the concentrated buyer who can work in a very clear sense with specific providers and the manufacturers to create a solution. Mm -hmm. All right, so crystal ball, Art. You're a small employer, What's the next year look like for you? And then put a bigger hat on. You're a large employer. What's the year look like for you? A smaller employer is probably happy to be looking at a captive because that will save. They're not paying the profit margin for full insurance and the risk factor that's embedded into a full insurance. The captive, if they're joining one that's already existing, is probably going to already have in place a plan and that's going to evolve slowly. Once you get a larger group, especially with multiple people that are involved in the decision process, it's going to be slow. There is a joke generally about benefits that people are planning now for 2022. And once the plan is in place, because they're all educating their employees on what the benefit plan is, they don't want to really try to keep re-educating, re-educating, re-educating. So they try to keep it stable and evolve it slowly. And that's why the small ones don't have any leverage to right. push for specific change. The big ones are reluctant to push for radical change in a hurry just because of internal communication challenges and uncertainty about budgets as a result of the change. Did that address the question? I believe it does. It's kind of a forward look at, you know, we're not looking at 2021, you're really looking at 2022. And uh, you know, it's a slow path, but again, the economic devastation and this longer-term impact. Talking with Scott Gottlieb, you know, the question is, like, when's this going to end? He goes, well, let me see, it's August 2020. Let's talk in August 2021, and let's see if we have better insights. So, yeah. you know, this is around for another year. So I just want to thank you and your panel. I mean, that was a great job again. You know, I have been a big champion of getting employers out here and discussing it. The patient is always on the receiving end of whatever is structurally put together, the contracts. And I think we have a lot of improvement that needs to be made in cancer care at the end of the day. And people like you and panels like this go a long way to helping us flush out what's wrong, because if you don't know what's wrong, you can't fix it. And so I appreciate your effort and your time, and we'll see you and have you back again. Thank you, Bert. I appreciate the opportunity, and I agree with you that change is needed. I think it needs to come from the manufacturer, the provider, and the employer. Yep. Thank you very much. Well, gee, that was just great today, and thank you for joining. Thank you to our faculty and our panelists. 
as usual, great content and the sharing of information, usually important if we are going to improve access and the quality of care that we're responsible for delivering along with change in this ecosystem. Like today, there'll be other and future webcasts. We cover all topics and all stakeholders. Stay tuned. Also, we post this on our website. It's very important that you can dial down and share with your colleagues. So we encourage you to do that. Additionally, if any of you have any comments, send them in through our website. If anyone would like to participate in speaking or has some other ideas, please share them with us. That's our mission. Thank you for joining. Talk again.